0: seems like one of the (laughs) core problems here is that central banks have lost touch with the answer to the question, what is money, or they have, it's become illegible to them, perhaps, maybe they had a kind of a bright, you know, clearly defined idea of what money was at some point, but it's, it's changed or evolved, there's Uh, It's transformed beyond their ability to perceive or manage it. So how should we be defining money or how should they be defining money uh, in comparison to what is being done now?
1: Well, what is being done now is nothing. So (laughs) that's that's probably a good place to start. In fact, They're doing less than nothing. They're actually pulling back on monetary scholarship. Is I mean, 2006 they discontinued M3, Mm -hmm. which everybody said. You know, again, critics of the money Fed as money printing said they were trying to hide inflation. When the Fed admitted to everybody who was honest and willing to look at them honestly, said, "We just can't keep track of this stuff. We don't know how to." This M3 component or this M3 aggregate that we had been producing for years, it was always incomplete to begin with. And what we've said is that we absolutely have no idea how to keep track of it and make it a more comprehensive and useful monetary aggregate so we're just going to stop we're just going to stop entirely and you look at what was in m3 m3 was not just institutional money market funds but it was also repo and it was also euro dollar deposits and things like that so they were trying to contain some of this offshore monetary system in the broadest aggregate but in 2005 and 2006 said we give up we're not even going to bother with M3 anymore because we have no idea how to re- how to accurately or precisely or even just reasonably calculate what's going in it. So to answer your question, it has to start with somebody standing up and saying, we need to do this. This is actually a meaningful project and a useful project because not doing it has left the entire world blind to the consequences of a monetary system gone wrong. And then the next question is well how the hell do you do that and the answer is I think you have to take an exhaustive examination of what it is banks actually do and you have to understand banks don't want you to know what they do because they do what they do under the cover of information information asymmetry which privileges their position in the global monetary order so the banking system you know we're all familiar with window dressing which is another way of saying we don't want you to know what we're doing so somewhere, has, somewhere, somewhere somebody has to say, we have to force open, not just your books at quarter end, but in real time so we can understand how it is your entire banking system actually operates and how it fits all together in a comprehensive global whole, which is something the banks themselves don't know. Mm-hmm. Because most banks just operate their own balance sheet capacities in their way that they see, they see fit. And I talk to people all the time who used to work in the banking system and they'd say, We had no idea what we're doing. You know, we're just trading exotics on the exotics desk because that's, you know, we're given a mandate to do that. We have no idea how that fits into this, you know, monetary scheme as a whole. So if the banks don't really know what they're doing, the bank leaders don't really know what they're doing. Central bankers have no idea what they're all up to. It really starts with, let's let's get a handle on what actually the banking system does nowadays, because that's where all the money is or the, you know, the, the, effective monetary components because whatever a bank does with in 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 uh, some sort of exchange with the real economy the end result is what the same thing would have would have happened under a you know a real monetary system so a bank does something with the real economy and the result is the monetary reaction of the real economy right okay um i know this, this is an unsatisfying <laughs> answer but, and it's almost a cop out right i'm just but the, the thing i don't know i mean i don't know i sit here today after 20 20 some odd years of of going through this and studying this euro dollar system and i can tell you that you know maybe i know more than anybody else but i there's still stuff that i don't know that you know mm-hmm. i mean i wouldn't even know what i don't know All right. that's really the problem it, it's if we can't really if we haven't even started to look take a serious look at what what actually goes on it's ridiculous to think that we could have any idea of successfully identifying these monetary forms and then starting to measure them and hopefully understand them in more, more granular detail. So what I do is essentially stand back from all that. I look at markets, I look at treasuries, I look at money curves, I look at all these other things, the prices of things, you know, some, some data like tick. And I say, well, I don't know what's going on in these monetary forms either but I think I can reasonably guess by how all these markets react to that shadow money that I can't see. Mm -hmm. So kind of taking the opposite approach, which is I can't define money either, but I know it's there. I know we can't observe it and it does have real economic and financial impacts. And if I calibrate these financial impacts in the right way, or what I hope is the right way, I can infer what must be going on in the monetary system without being able to define exactly what goes on in those places. Hmm. And it's, it's not the most desirable way to do things, but that's at least some place to start. And I think the better way would be to open up these shadows and actually take a, a really serious look at them. But I think there's a lot of impediments to doing that. I mean, this is an offshore system for a reason. It's outside the control of regulators. And so regulators can only apply a little bit of influence on what goes on in the banking system. And it's, it's in the shadows, in the dark for, for a reason. Right. Banks don't want people to know what goes on there. Oh,
0: that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, not only are banks, I mean, there are impediments to, say, peering at the balance sheet of these banks that constitute the banking network, but they're also incentivized to resist anyone looking at them because that supports their privileged information asymmetric position through which they generate profits, revenues, et cetera. Um,
1: essentially rent, right? I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's basically rent-seeking rent, behavior, yes. using information asymmetry to privilege a viewpoint that they didn't come about through their own exertions or their own you know, efficient and profitable means. It's just by basis of their own privilege.
0: Right. This is gatekeeping, essentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they have every incentive to continue the status quo, which is why they like quantitative easing, mm-hmm. not because the Fed is handing the money, But because it gets people to believe that there's some hope here, Mm -hmm. and therefore we don't need to radically redraw the monetary system because we don't know we should. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So all right, that seems like kind of like a fool's errand because not only are there a lot of impediments, but they're incentivized to try and create more impediments or dodge you any way they can. And in the digital age, you know, it seems like I don't know. I guess I could go either direction. Kind of could go they could be able to cloak themselves more, or maybe the regulators will gain uh, more visibility. I'm not sure about that one, my, here's my question though. I'm kind of a thought experiment to participate with you in. If we can't see the intermediary layer, or it's very expensive, or it's very difficult, or they're incentivized not to open their balance sheets to the world so that we can clearly, legibly define what is money, w- If, and I'm going straight to Bitcoin, you know where I'm going, if we instead have perfect legibility at the base layer, where the the base money itself is transparent, fully auditable, you know, capable of final settlement, conversion, all these things, do we obviate the need for that exhaustive look at the bank balance sheet layer?
1: Well, that depends on whether you believe the intermediation function should be fully transparent, too. And there's arguments for and against, right? Because intermediation is essentially what banks are supposed to be doing. And they're supposed to have, you know, their own secret way of doing it that they don't need to share with the rest of the world, because that's really what makes them their profits in the ideal banking system, not obviously in the current banking system. So if you have a base layer that's fully transparent, like, you know, the old gold standard, for example, everybody knew the rules. Everybody knew if you possessed gold, you had money. If you didn't possess gold, you didn't have money, which is the simplest form of base money there is. But yet, even then, there was complications, financial complications, for what banks did from there. I mean, fractional reserve lending, currency, print, you know, uh, all sorts of all those things. So it really depends on your view of whether you think the intermediation function should be equally as transparent as the base monetary layer. And I agree with you. I think that's really the answer here, is to create a layered approach. It's just a question of how much how many layers do we need mm-hmm. and how do we tailor each layer to its intended function I would love to have a base money layer that is completely utterly transparent that that preserves some element of convert convertibility so that regular folks like you and me have some sort of check on the banking system's behavior but then what is the maybe the currency layer or the payments layer look like because again there's there, we don't want you know we As the government is trying to do right now, having the IRS or having banks report to the IRS every transaction above Mm -hmm. $600, we don't want that level of transparency either. Maybe that's in the payment system, that's too transparent, but we do want some idea of what goes on in between payments and base money. What is this intermediation? What is all this financialism? What is it actually doing? So it's, it's, I think it's a much more complicated issue than saying we want everything to be completely transparent or we want everything to be on a on a level playing field and everything is exactly you know the same all throughout it. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to be a more complicated, nuanced, and dynamic.
0: Okay, so maybe we just narrow the focus in. If we're just trying to get a clear definition or a clear understanding of what is money, like from a central bank standpoint. Would something like a Bitcoin as base layer money contribute toward answering that question? Regardless, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, we'd be less concerned about the opacity at the intermediary layer if we had full auditability at
1: the base layer. Is that right? In theory, I think there's still problems that when you get into, um, you know, some not enough transparency above the base money layer, where, you know, it can lead to information asymmetry. It can lead to all sorts of problems. But I think mm-hmm. My problem with Bitcoin is I don't like the fact that it's fixed money. Mm -hmm. And I think history has shown conclusively that fixed money systems lead to all sorts of deflationary disasters because, you know, in a dynamic worldview, supply of money and demand for money are always changing. And as we talked about before, the interest rate is not a, it's not a sufficient enough regulator between supply and demand, especially during times of crisis where you get into backwards, elasticity and things like that. So But I I like the idea of a fully transparent base money layer. And I think Bitcoin is probably the most elegant uh, alternative at the moment that would be useful in that sort of capacity where it's completely transparent. We all know what it is and what it's Mm -hmm. supposed to do. Although some people have trouble, especially older people having trouble conceptualizing digital money, Mm -hmm. which is nothing more than digits in a computer. And maybe that, you know, that's that presents an emotional problem to them. But. You know, as we talked about from the very beginning, money itself is all about faith and trust and transparency. I mean, Mm -hmm. faith and trust and transparency is probably the first element in that faith and trust. Mm -hmm. So that's a good place to start, but I think it gets more complicated the further in you go.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um all right, so we could at least agree that at least clarifying money would resolve. I don't know that it would resolve these problems, but it would at least give us a clearer picture of what central banks are doing, what works, what doesn't. I mean, I guess you're still stuck with this. Whether or or not we actually need them. Whether you need I think him, that's yeah. to me,
1: that's to me is the most elegant and the most beautiful potential solution from digital currencies. We may not need central banks at all. Not only we not, may not need central banks, we may not need banks. Mm-hmm. We might have a situation where, because you know, decentralized finance, truly decentralized finance, where the intermediation function is performed by less rigid structures, maybe even right. ad hoc networks. Right. Think about something like that. I, to me, that's beautiful. To some people, it's terrifying. Um, when you don't have any kind of control that, on, on those kind of things. but to me I think that's that's the free market baby. Yes. We don't need we don't need these rigid banking systems that sit atop everything and get the special privilege because in a truly transparent environment that's decentralized, you know winners and losers will rise and fall and they'll perform the intermediation function. I think that's kind of what we're talking yeah. about here. yeah we're separating what should be separate. The intermediation function from the money creation or the money uh, money maintenance function, mm-hmm. and that's where I believe the eurodollar system went very wrong, because it combined those two. The mm-hmm. agents of intermediation, this global banking system, were also the elements of money creation, which then bastardized the entire intermediation process and, and, and let it way astray. So I think the, the maybe the best solution is to go back to separating money creation and maintenance from intermediation. So if you're only going to get profits and you're only going to make money off of intermediation, you don't have an incentive to just try to create money, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't. Your only way of your only way of making money, your only way of, of continuing in business is to be good at intermediating, which is a very a vital and necessary function of the monetary system so that money can move and and flow and circulate efficiently as most efficiently as possible okay so
0: i think i might i might have a sticking point here with my understanding of your view supply and demand should be driving the creation or depletion of the money supply to some extent otherwise we're stuck with a perfectly inelastic money like bitcoin so my thoughts here, if you've got layer money, which you'd call Bitcoin or gold, and then you have the the banks sitting on top of it, providing the classical functions of let, borrowing, lending, maturity matching, and custody in a purely free market environment, those banks would also be free really to issue their own fractional reserve or even fiat currency. And then their customers, they'd just be trading on their reputation effectively. Their customers could call their bluff and convert into Bitcoin or gold at
1: Absolutely. any time. So what so then they have they have the brutal discipline of if we screw our reputation and do something wrong we're out of business.
0: Right. So isn't that combining the money creation and maintenance function that you were just describing to separate or am I not understanding?
1: It's more of a currency function which is a, okay. you know essentially a tokenization of money which allows for some form of elasticity and that's really what we're talking about who's providing elasticity. And elasticity yeah. and redistribution is really another element of money supply itself, right? Because there are times when money tends to pool up and it's not a problem of lack of supply. It's lack of flow. Right, And that's really kind of where, it's, that's where elasticity and redistribution comes into play is that that's really what the central banks are supposed to be doing. That's the Walter Badgett going back to the 19th mm-hmm. century ideal, where if money pools in the wrong places and it starves the rest of the system, it's not that there's, there's not enough money. It's just not moving where it needs right. to move. There has to be some element that matches demand and supply where maybe the free market system or the banking system, maybe it's a perverted banking system that's not doing its job. So how do we best match demand and supply? And it's not always money supply function, it could be the redistribution function. And I think in that situation, it becomes sort of a, a, not necessarily a need, but at least some form of, of appreciation for elasticity and currency that is responsible to the monetary system, which is if we get too far with our own currency elasticity as an individual banking institution or even just an individual company as terrifying as that may be for people, what if we have Apple dollars or right. you know cool. Google dollars or IBM dollars or you know something like that? I mean I wouldn't be opposed it doesn't have to be a bank. I'd like to reimagine this without banks. But you know if we have competing currencies that are all convertible into base money, then you have the ability to check these currency systems as layered as they might be, because you can always convert them out of business. So they have an essential skin in the game to make sure that this elasticity they're providing through currency is some form of responsible elasticity. It doesn't mean it's perfect, but it is at least more responsible to the monetary system, which is always threatening convertibility.
0: Yes, because they're taking risk of loss then, basically.
1: Absolutely. Right?
0: You overissue, you can get called. And again, they, they don't
1: have any other way of making money aside from intermediation. They can't create right. their own money. They can't create their own, you know, the, the base money. Yeah. So they're always stuck behind the, the threat of convertibility, which should, it should. Keep them in honest. Theory. Right. Yeah. Now they're going to make mistakes and it's not going to be perfect all the time. Because markets are extremely messy and people right. are humans are fallible and flawed. so But at least in aggregate, we should have a currency system that's both dynamic and elastic, at least more dynamic dynamic and elastic than a fixed monetary system. But in this, it's more responsible because yeah. of that threat of convertibility that lies underneath the whole time.
0: Yeah. Okay. So now we're getting somewhere. So th- there's this, the optimal balance is between the full convertibility, and really just un, no regulation on elasticity, right? Print as much money as you want, enter freely and exit the market. If you go bankrupt, then so be it, right? right. And then you've educated the market in the process. Um, so that and seems like dumb it would ideas are
1: exp- Your dumb ideas are expunged and we move yes. on without you and you're not a drag on the efficiency of the system.
0: Yes. Yeah. And we all learn, right? We learn from uh, bankruptcy to bankruptcy.
1: So- now, we got to remember that, Traditional and orthodox economists will argue against that situation because what they'll say is that, well, yeah, that sounds great in practice or in theory, but in practice, it doesn't ever work out that way because what ends up happening is these failures of currency elasticity, private or whatever, they tend to they tend to congregate and aggregate together into these crisis periods. So we have all of these private functions of currency providing elasticity, but when too many of them fail at the same time that leads to the same problem, which is deflationary money. Well, and that's their argument for though, right? central banking sitting in the in the middle, therefore providing a public good of elasticity that's unrelated to um, you know, efficiency and that those kinds of things.
0: But they're not even doing that anymore, right? It's a commercial bank no, I know. providing <laughs> <the> <laughs> that's, elasticity. I'm so. just saying, that's, the, <laughs> yeah.
1: that's the argument that they would make is that you can't have a fully private free market system. You're always gonna need a public regulator standing on top because otherwise you know, it's prone to large failures.
0: I think this is just one of the most deeply embedded social self-deceptions we have, as if somehow the free market works like magic and all these other industries, but it just can't work in money for some reason. We need to control right. it and monopolize it. I think with the system you're describing here, where the a dynamic equilibrium between full convertibility and full elasticity, right? Fiat until you're blue in the face, Don't be mad when your customers call your bluff and you go out of business, right? That's the free market. That's the flip side to it. So that in my mind makes very intuitive, obvious sense in a lot of way that that would work.
1: And that's really just replicating the gold standard. That's replicating the best parts of the gold standard Mm-mm. in a modern digital format. Without suspending convertibility. So really, exactly, well, convertibility, if any true gold standard, there's always convertibility. Right. But they always suspend real, it when things get dicey, right?
0: To protect the banks. Well,
1: yeah. That's So it's not really a gold, a true gold standard, is it? Right. It's, it's a hybrid standard where it's, you know, 1933, for example, where we, we're on a gold standard, but we're not a gold standard because it's suspended. Yes. Or, you know, World War I when practically every European power just went off the gold standard to pay for wars, which, you know, obviously the worst form of public monetary investment there is. So, you know, that's, I think that's, that's the beauty and the potential of digital currency. If they're done correctly, then central banks and politicians don't get a say in that, right? Right. Because the rules of the blockchain are written ahead of time and they can't be changed or they shouldn't be changed. Yeah. So if we do it right, you write the rules, you embed them in the blockchain, then you're right. Then everybody's free to create as much currency as they want, with the caveat that if you make mistakes, you're out of business and your customers are going to convert and you're done. Right. But there's Uh, there's a there's an elegance involved in that kind of a theory. The question is whether or not it's actually practical. Right. And that's that's where it gets into the stickiness and the complications. Well, I, I mean,
0: the problem here is that n- that free market experimentation has never been allowed to run. I know there was a small right. period in Scotland, I think it was, they had free banking for a couple hundred years, maybe. Um, there was
1: free banking in the United States too. I think people don't realize that in, the, in certain parts of the, the 1800s, in currency, paper currency was not printed by a central bank because there wasn't one, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, paper currency was printed by individual banking institutions. Right. Not only that, the currency was valued at different prices depending on where the currency was traded in relation to the physical geog- geography of the bank that issued it. So the farther you away went, you went from a bank, the less the less value assigned to that currency because the people in the, the next town over had no idea what that bank was up right. to, and so they would discount the currency. So there was honesty in that too. Yeah. And so the bank had tremendous. You know, I'm talking about the Suffolk system too, where banks had every incentive to be honest and, and to do the good thing, you know, to, to do honest work. I mean, obviously there are individual failures. Honestly, there's corruption. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a messy, messy, uh, it's a messy kind of affair, but you know, there's, it's been done. It's, this is not something brand new. This is not something that's never been tried before.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. There. All right. Let's focus on this then. Okay. I could, First, all right, let's go here. (laughs) I got to ask you, we already touched on it a little bit. This is a bit of a tangent, but after we hit this, I want to come back to market failures. WTF are bank reserves today because it doesn't sound like they're reserves of anything. And as we were talking offline before the show, um, you were saying this is one of the most, the biggest blind
1: spots for most people. It's hard to comprehend because it's a central bank product. It's called bank reserves. It seems intuitively like it should be a monetary form. In a lot of places, they refer to bank reserves as base money. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's never really been the case. Um, uh, The best example that I can give people, as we talked about before, was the worst parts of the 2008 crisis. People may not realize that during September and October and November and December of 2008, not into 2009, the Federal Reserve had done so much money printing that they created what they even called, they arrogantly called a regime of abundant reserves. Mm. So process that. There was an abundant amount of bank reserves during the worst part of the worst monetary crisis since the Great Depression. So right away, you should be thinking to yourself, how can these things be money if there's an abundant number of reserves, yet we're in a global monetary crisis? Mm. And the answer is that reserves may not be effective money and that the effective money was some other forms that that's what created the global monetary crisis that these abundant bank reserves could never solve. Mm. That's just the most prominent example. It's, 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 you can look at this in any number of ways throughout history as well. As I said to you before, people may also be shocked to learn before 2008, there were practically no bank reserves. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple billion in a system that spans worldwide into the who knows how many trillions. There was only maybe about 8 to 10 billion in bank reserves for years, for decades. Mm-hmm. There were no bank reserves in the system. The system worked and seemed to function properly without these bank reserves. And the reason is because the monetary system's global banking system created its own forms of liquidity that didn't include what the Federal Reserve was doing because the Federal Reserve was off doing this manipulation expectations game that didn't actually include actual money. Mm. So that's how you can have a global monetary system that seems to function only too well up until 2008 with no bank reserves in it. Mm -hmm. And then it completely breaks down, which leads to hundreds of billions, if not trillions of bank reserves that have no liquidity effect whatsoever. That's the only way you can reconcile these two facts, which are bank reserves are not money. They're simply an accounting paradigm or accounting leftover central bank accounting. Okay, let me
0: try and echo this back and tell me where I'm wrong uh the bank reserve is an accounting fiction more or less is it is it the commercial bank commercial banks account at the central bank yes okay and these are coming into existence essentially as a residual as a result of, of transactions between exclusively the two. This, okay.
1: it's all what the central bank does they create or whatever transaction they want to do they're the ones who create bank reserves commercial banks don't create they don't destroy they don't they don't influence their balance of bank reserves except as if they're used for settlement in some kind of interbank transaction
0: got it okay so in the same way the federal reserve is not federal and has no reserves bank reserves right. are not at banks I mean, I guess they're kind
1: of at banks, but they're not really because they're just accounting
0: fictions and they're not reserves.
1: Well, theoretically, and this is, you know, people bring this up all the time. Theoretically, if you have a deposit account with the Federal Reserve, what we call bank reserves, Mm -hmm. it's no different than a deposit account with a commercial bank. You have the right to convertibility. So as a commercial bank, you have this reserve balance with the Fed. You could theoretically call them up and say, I want pallets of cash. Because you have the right to convert into physical cash. Now, no bank is ever going to do that, right. because it's the same as like if you take SA gold off market and it becomes non-SA gold. To put it back on market, you have to go through a whole bunch of costs, because physical Federal right. Reserve notes and cash doesn't work with an electronic virtual system. Right. Not only do you have to hire guards and vaults, it doesn't account. You can't account for it and trade it in the same way as you can this virtual electronic money.
0: And the conversion doesn't really serve the purpose of conversion, which is to eliminate the counterparty risk, because you just be converting exactly because into physical in the in cash the
1: system you do that anyway. Yes. Okay. So this physical cash, I mean, but you can see why bank reserves were considered money at one time because there was a time, long, long time ago, when that conversion right actually might have meant something. Right. You know, in the 19 teens and 1920s, where physical cash, even then, it was dubious, but you know, physical cash could help create uh, liquidity. If you have a bunch of depositors who need physical cash, they're yeah. converting their deposit liabilities into physical cash. You know, the right to convert into actual cash from the fed has some limited value back then, but in a cashless virtual currency society that we have now, that is completely, completely yeah. worthless. It has no, has no, is no uh, place in the system.
0: Right. Okay.
1: That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know 2008 abundant reserves yet monetary crisis and that's that's if once you start to think about that in any any even just for a little bit you can see that those two things you can't reconcile them there's right. no way to say we have an abundance of reserves yet a global monetary panic
0: yeah that makes a ton of sense cuz yeah it's not it's not liquidity at least i mean you could argue about the definition of what is money but um it's definitely not liquidity i think that pretty well demonstrates it hey everybody or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Okay. The last thing I wanted to hit on with you, and we've kind of already talked about this, but the idea of market failures, this is an area that I consider to be one of my own blind spots that I just haven't studied enough on. Um, And I think we kind of, I mean, I really do think we solved something here that if you just had this, as long as you, you can have as much elasticity in money as you want, so long as there's convertibility, these it's kind of the yin and yang that would maintain balance um, on a, in a free market system even. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But what I'd like to drill into a bit is the case of market failures. Are there other instances outside of the sphere of money that come to mind where the free market is inadequate to some extent and then we humans intervene with some you know coercive compulsive non-free market measure to rectify it towards a better outcome is there anything that comes to mind where this is the case because i mean frankly i i don't have any any knowledge of a market failure or human intervention led us to a better outcome than the market otherwise would have
1: yeah and i think you know we talked about this a little bit before off, off the air together that mm-hmm. you know we have to be careful about when we define market. Because Mm -hmm. in in my sense, most people, when they think of market, they think of stocks or bonds or financial assets. And Mm -hmm. we're conditioned to believe when you hear the term market, immediately you think to to financial assets. When in reality, what a market should be in a free market sense, in a capitalist sense is when you go to the grocery store and buy a can of tuna, Mm -hmm. that's the market Mm -hmm. because it's commerce. you're, You're engaging in commerce and it's a free market commercial aspect where everybody knows what's going on. We're all on a pretty much a level playing field. And that's because we're on a level playing field in a commercial, a real economy commercial setting. I think that's where it works the, the best and why we have so little examples of free markets going astray. Mm-hmm. But when we start to think about it in terms of financial markets, it's never, re- I mean, you know this, Rob, it's never really a free market in the financial markets. Number one, as we said before, because it's never a level playing field. There's always p- participants in it who are privileged in some way or another, usually information asymmetry, mm-hmm. which prevents the market from being an actual free market. There's always some kind of friction involved in the financial part of it. That that's why I think a lot of the financial markets break down from time to time and break down so spectacularly. Is because they're sort of divorced from what a real market should be, which is what we see in com- in real commerce and real economy a- a- actions. Mm. So, you know, like you, I'm a I'm an absolutely a free market proponent, and I believe in free markets. But, you know, as I said, you know, I've become a little bit jaded over time <sighs> because I think we have to be, you can't be romantic, you can't romanticize markets, and you have to realize that they're not perfect, that they're messy, and that there are downsides, and it may just be you know as I, said, I think we said this before is. Winston Churchill said, "Of democracy, it's the worst form of government, except all others have been tried." Right. It may be that free markets are the worst form of market economies, except you know, all others that have been tried too, mm-hmm. which means they're not perfect, and we shouldn't expect them to be perfect. We shouldn't expect yep. them to to operate seamlessly forever and ever and ever without going through periods of problems. And if we don't have that expectations, maybe we can concern ourselves with trying to identify faults and problems before they actually happen and be realistic about the fact that they could happen. But then of course, then are you saying, is it really a free market then? Because now you're talking about, well, what do we do about the free market problems that are probably not gonna be free market solutions? So is it even possible to have a completely free market operate anywhere?
0: Yeah, it's a great point. You you bring up the excellent point that we should define it to begin with, because most people, probably do think the way you describe, right? Financial markets and, and they think largely, uh, in my opinion, the socioeconomic issues they see in the world, like we're talking earlier about political polarization, for instance, most people think that's somehow related to capitalism, right? Right. But in fact, it's all these anti-capitalistic measures and, and legislation and regulation we have that really creates these, these externalities. So when I'm, defining a free market, I mean, specifically a forum of free exchange that's unimpeded, unhampered, uh, which would, again, in my mind, also be the best way to resolve information asymmetries, because everyone has the incentive to trade on information asymmetry or any, any information they have that the market doesn't, you have an incentive to trade on that. And when you trade on that, you're putting that knowledge into the market effectively. What you try to wall that up and say, no, 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 there's no insider trading, you're actually worsening information asymmetry. Um, so that I think that's an important distinction there. And then, you know, markets are definitely more messy, but I actually think this is a benefit because what we have with you know, at least it's real, it's showing us that there's volatility, things are changing, there's dynamism taking place, whereas let's just say in the central bank paradigm, we get these long periods of apparent stability, right? Or even boom time. And then you have these huge catastrophes because they're just sweeping everything under the rug, right? You're papering over uh, what would otherwise be a a, a reallocation of capital if a company goes bankrupt versus pumping, pumping it with artificial liquidity to turn it into a zombie company. It looks great and more stable and Um, more alive for a longer period of time than it otherwise would be. But it's that messiness that gets us
1: closer to reality, it seems like. Yeah, and I think that's an age-old argument, too. Would you rather have regular small failures spaced out over time, or would you rather have them converge into one big failure that just is completely disruptive? And the, the obvious answer is you'd rather have small failures spaced out over time which is, I mean, but is that a practical, is that a, is that a realistic potential? Because that, that's really, you know, getting to the various arguments of what is the business cycle and what causes the business cycle, mm-hmm. that's really all we're talking about is, is it better to, you know, allow these, is, is it going to happen where if we have these small failures through time that we don't have the big failures? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's any cases where you can point to and say, yes. And part of the reason is because we don't have a counterfactual as we were saying right. before, we can't prove that it would have worked one way or the other because all we have is what did happen. And what did happen is we were talking about earlier, we've never really had a perfectly free market in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we ever will, because I mean, governments are always going to want to interfere and they don't know how you keep their hands out of everything because mm-hmm. that's the government, they have the ability to do that. Um, it's really, it's, how much of a how much of a free market is enough of a free market to get to that approach and and will it realistically obviate these you know these potential for you know crisis the, the where these failures build up together into one big uh one big incident that creates the big ruptures that we've all tried to avoid in the first place mm-hmm. is the market information transparency level playing field all those kinds of incentives are they enough to prevent those kinds of you know, big ticket, uh, uh, big ticket um, drawdowns, mm-hmm. you know, the, def- the real monetary deflation is like the Great Depression, or even just some of the minor depressions. And that's, you know, that's hard to, it's, it's hard to really think about ahead of time, because we don't have that kind of a template to say, yes, this absolutely would work. And, uh, you know, as you were saying, the messiness is part of it, but yet, messiness does create negative emotions that tend to influence behavior in irrational ways. Mm. And is that the free market? Is that the other side of the free market? Or is that something different? And that's where economists and mainstream economists say, no, because free market failure tends to create emotional responses that then cause more harm than do good. And I don't know how you can say, you know, uh, for sure that that's not the case. I mean, we think that we allow failure and we allow negative emotions and irrationality to become part of the information flow, but it may be that they're destructive in their own way too. Mm. That's, that's a really difficult thing to settle. And I, you know, I don't know how you argue conclusively one way or the other. Yeah. So that's why, you know, we're kind of in between boundaries where it's sort of a spectrum, right. Where I think you and I would would, would prefer something closer to the more, free market, less interference part of the spectrum. And you probably go a little bit farther than I would. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't want anything to do with the status part of the spectrum or central mm-hmm. planning because that's a surefire guarantee. That's one thing we do know is a mm-hmm. surefire guarantee to failure because it always leads to failure. So it's it's kind of, you know, where do you fall on the spectrum of how much of a freedom in the free market place? How much, is, how much of it is sufficient to still call it a free market and still get the benefits of it?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great point that we speak in absolute terms when we say free market, but it really exists on a continuum. Yeah, um, and I guess that there's a faith built into this to some extent, where the libertarian or Bitcoiner mindset is just that to be closer to the truth is in. An, it's more valuable, right? Even if it's messy, if we're saying the market's messy, we want more order and cleanliness by giving more control to these central institutions, you know, no, because that comes with all these inherent deceptions that snowball over time as we've discussed. So, and that seems to me to be consistent with reality, right? Like no matter what model we make of reality, the map is never the territory. So as things change over time, we have to update the model all the time. It's messy. It's right. a messy process. If we start, and that's just, what
1: the market's doing in real time, right? Exactly. It's, it's always reacting in real time to information that changes, and it's always going to change.
0: Yes, yes. And if we, you know, are arrogant or self-deceptive enough to ignore that and say, "No, no, my map's good," and you just keep waiting and keep playing by that same map, you get into the situation we're in today.
1: Yeah, and I agree. I think that's absolutely right, but. I think that you need to take the other side of it and and appreciate the fact that even the best approach, the free market approach, which is essentially decentralized big data kind of thing, right? Because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, the free market captures as much as information as possible. Mm -hmm. But even that approach is prone to error. Mm -hmm. There's something, you know, maybe it's just humanity We're you know, we are no angels and we never will be. So there's gotta be some way to at least recognize as well as maybe do something about the potential for these errors to get out of hand mm-hmm. realizing they're going to be a part of the system to begin with there i don't think there is a self a fully self-regulating system because to me it's almost like you know a perpetual motion machine mm-hmm. there's got to be some sort of corrective and i hate to use that word too because it's you know because then it's it's Mm-hmm. corrective means somebody stands outside and tells what's right and wrong, which is yeah. the, the exact opposite of what we're talking about. But maybe that's the wrong word. But you know what I'm saying? There has to be some way of introducing some form of regulatory um, feature that keeps the free market within certain boundaries. Right. Which, again, recognizing that these terms are leading to all sorts of bad, you know, Uh, potential for abuse, because if we're allowing somebody to define boundaries, they're going to define boundaries in arbitrary ways, which is kind of the opposite of what we're trying to do here. But I think, you know, again, the overall point is free market is more, more free market better, but it's not perfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I hear your point loud and clear. There needs to be something to push against or something to impose accountability and I'm not saying this has to be a person even like gold was a regulator historically, right? Nobody could yeah. produce more of it there. It kept us bound, kept the free market bound to some extent. Um, But it does seem like, I guess there's another big point here for me that, because to your point, we can't get these counterfactuals. So empiricism is not very useful in economics to a large extent. So the fact that, the austrian business cycle theory is rooted in rationalism versus empiricism i think this is a very under underappreciated aspect where if if a central banker took the austrian business cycle theory seriously i mean they would disband tomorrow right it's like yeah. they, they're driving the business cycle um so i don't know i mean it's almost as if the free market in this pure ideological sense we're saying it in it was just never possible Is is never possible? It may not
1: be. It just may not be, right? It's it's just it's too idyllic. But we can get closer to it, right? The more we we should try to. Yes, I think that's that's really the thing here. Is not that we should get closer, but we should attempt to be as close as possible to it because we both agree that just from an information standpoint, free market is the best form of information gathering Mm -hmm. and assorting and assigning and interpreting, because. The closer you get to statism, the closer you get to just essentially big errors. Because if the one person's making all the decision, they don't make the right decision. The whole thing falls apart. It's all errors. Yeah. Yeah. The, so, the widest pyramid or the best pyramids are the ones that are widest at the bottom for a reason. I mean, that's just being think that's intuitive sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I like that visualization. And so the, the cheaper we can make. I guess the cheap, more cheaply we can enforce property rights the wider we can get that pyramid something like that.
1: Yeah and I think that's one of the unappreciated aspects of modern money certainly euro dollar system is that it's bastardized ownership and title and capital the, the those, those words mean absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. The perfect example is the repo market where treasuries that are supposed to be owned by someone are reused and repledged and often rehypothecated which I mean, completely obliterates the idea of title and transfer, title and ownership, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, financial law, people understand too, need to understand too, financial law is very different from property law. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for it because Mm -hmm. that's the basis for this information asymmetry in the privileged place of the banking system because it operates under financial law rather than property law. Mm -hmm. And if we do a monetary system that is real base money, then it should operate under property law, not mm-hmm. financial law. So we're all clear cut on what is and is not owned, and what actually is and is not capital. And I think when we go back to that kind of a system, what ends up happening is a natural side effect is that we stop caring so much about the financial stuff and care more about the commercial stuff, the real right. economy stuff, because yep. that's where our focus is. And we, we can't make tons of money by creating currency because that will just, it'll spin us out of business. We have to focus on real economy projects because that's the only way we're allowed to actually make any money. Yes. And it's really, that's, I think, an underappreciated aspect of all this is that financial law is very different than property law. Right. And that the two, as you said before, the, this isn't capital. This ain't capitalism. <laughs> right. Sorry. It's not capitalism. <laughs> this yeah. is not capitalism. Yeah. Capitalism is very succinct about ownership and capital, what isn't, what is not those things. And we don't have those and haven't in a long time.
0: Yeah. Well, wow, that's an excellent point. Um Yeah, if we, I mean you almost need they need <laughs> the concept of financial law almost doesn't need to exist independent of property law. It because, shouldn't. I mean there's yeah.
1: I mean the I think you know when we were talking there it's there are some legitimate uses for financial law where you know there are, you know, some some forms of where that would be appropriate. Except, you know, as anything else, it gets to be once you open that door, there's incentives to go inside and expand it and expand it and expand it, which is kind of what happened. Yeah. But, but so you're right. Friend. I think it's, you know, like we say, go closer to free markets. We want to go closer to property law and away right. from financial law.
0: Once again, if you have absolute convertibility, then it should map right on to property law. That should be
1: right. That should become the most important aspect of the monetary system is ownership of that money. And and therefore it becomes the focus of the entire system. And you're layering on top of that without getting, you know, making sure that that's that's sort of the anchor. So we don't get too far into financialism Mm -hmm. because that's where it really starts to go wrong. Well,
0: I think, We've covered a lot of ground here. And um, I feel I know we don't see eye to eye on Bitcoin, but I actually feel more bullish on Bitcoin as a result of this discussion. So
1: that actually makes me incredibly happy, believe it or not. Now, I don't you know, I don't know if we don't see eye to eye on Bitcoin. I just don't think, you know, I have my own thoughts about it and I don't. I, I've written for more than a decade that I've had high hopes for Bitcoin, yeah. both as a currency as well as a technology. And I think as, you know, just the first one through the wall to break down the barriers into the digital space, There's there's already tremendous value there as well. And even more than that, I think the best part about it is it's gotten people to talk about and think about mm-hmm. these monetary, you know, thorny issues that, for a long, long time, just kind of laid dormant. Nobody thought about, you know, convertibility, gold. That stuff is all ancient history. And all of a sudden now we're actually having robust discussions amongst a very large audience when, you know, even though today people don't really understand money or, you know, they've been taught all the wrong things about money. Yet here we are talking about it again. So, I mean, I love Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not convinced that it's, you know, it's the winner. But I think it's it's there's, there's so much value and there's so much good about it. Yeah,
0: well, agreed on that. And I think the notion you just brought up is very clearly reflected in the generalized use of fiat currency, right? That's become a mainstream almost term. And 10 years ago, I mean, I remember talking about fiat currency after reading like Creature from Jekyll Island and things like that. And people were just, no one knew what that meant. Uh, everyone thought it was a car, right? <laughs> the Fiat car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: I don't know. You know and, it's, and that was part of this whole expectations regime, right? Is mm. the idea was to put the central bank in the middle of your mind, so mm. you never thought about money entirely. So, like I said, it's the most successful PR operation in history. Yeah, because for more than a decade, several decades. The entire global public never gave money a second thought. And that was really the problem. That's really the problem we're sticking with. And that's really what Bitcoin was really, I believe, designed to solve was to open that door and get people talking about money because something's wrong with the monetary system. Even if we don't know what it is, we know something's there and it's worth at least talking about it in a way that we haven't for Jesus. I mean, you know, three quarters of a century. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and up to and including the inspiration for this show. So, (laughs) absolutely, uh, I, you know, Jeff, this has been an awesome conversation. I just to wrap it up. What would change? What do you have an idea in mind about the threshold, or what event would take place that would actually change your mind to where you thought Bitcoin was going to be the dominant money in the world? Is there a certain market cap or a certain event? Um,
1: what concerns me most about Bitcoin is that it's not widely distributed. It's it's concentrated in a few hands, and that's mm. that's always a big no-no in the monetary sphere. Because you want, again, you want to have a wider base. Right. If there ever came a time where Bitcoin became more dispersed, and it was. Uh, I don't think there's a specific threshold, but at least, you know, it, it started to act more like an actual currency system, more of a medium of exchange and strictly mm-hmm. store of value where it was accepted in, in, in across a, a wider. I mean, I might change my mind at that point, but I still am a little leery of the fact that it's a fixed system. There's no any elasticity. And so I think, you know, it, maybe Bitcoin is what, you're, what we're just saying, that it's the base money layer and that mm-hmm. elasticity is done by something else. But, you know, as long as it's it's concentrated in a few hands, I don't think it forms an effective base money layer either. Right. That may, I mean, that may change. I I certainly don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. Um, I may have very opinionated opinions, very strong opinions, <laughs> but uh, I'm actually very open to those kinds of things. And I actually do believe uh, at some point in the not too distant future, the world will be on some digital standard. I don't believe it'll be a central bank digital currency because those are worthless and those are completely designed for other reasons mostly surveillance. I think oh. we will uh, we will actually be on a private digital money standard. I just don't know what it is or what it would look like. Gotcha. I hope it would look like what we're talking about but
0: <laughs> yeah, well it's very exciting time to be in our business, that's for sure. Um thank you so much for doing this. I've learned a lot.
1: Uh if you just want to tell my audience where they could find you. Yeah, I'm at Alhambra Partners or Alhambra Investments. I publish blogs about the Eurodollar system and macroeconomic commentary related to the monetary system at alhambrapartners.com. I also do a podcast with my co-host Emil Kalinowski. It's called Eurodollar Universities Making Sense. You can find it on YouTube or Apple or wherever else you get podcasts where we talk about this very kind of stuff. We talk about digital currencies as much as we possibly can because not only is it an interesting topic uh, you know, current topic, I, as I said, it's, it's an interesting topic for the future. And as I spend most of my time looking backward at the system as it was, that's just depressing and gloomy and <laughs> awful. Whereas looking ahead into the digital currency space, there's at least optimism and happiness and opportunity there.
0: Yeah. I highly recommend uh, your podcast. I mean, I was introduced to your work through, I guess it was the Macro Voices Euro Dollar University, Um, but just an excellent deep dive into all these topics. So Jeff, I really appreciate this. I'm going to have you back on when Bitcoin gets a little more widely distributed and is being used as a medium (laughs) of exchange.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I look forward to that. I absolutely do. Thank you for having me, Robert. I appreciate
0: it. Yep. Thanks, Jeff.